Christ cries. Christ cries. Starting in verse 28 of chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a cold tide, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. To those who were sent, so those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they have seen, saying, Blessed is is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Amen. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that there was a time that we didn't see the time of our visitation, but by grace you opened up our eyes as we Heard in the text today, God, we were dead in sins and transgressions, Father God. But Father, by grace, you made the visitation in our lives so clear, so irresistible as a moth drawn to the flame. We could not resist the love of Christ for us, God. We thank you, Father God, that him who died on our behalf, Father God, and drew us into the kingdom by this awesome and great power, Father God, We thank you for his saving work in our life. Father God, breathe upon the text. Illuminate our minds to understand and comprehend the things you lay before us. Let it be encouraging to us, Father God. And God, if so, let us understand and tap into the cry of Christ. Let us see with a perspective not of our own. Let us see what Jesus saw, Father God. Let us feel the pain and suffering that Jesus saw when he came into the city that rejects its own prophets and Messiah, Father God. God, let us not run away from the pain of rejection in our life, Father God. Open up our hearts to embrace those who reject you. In Jesus' name, amen. The triumphal entry, historically known as Palm Sunday. That is today, a day of mixed emotions, as our text is going to reveal to us. A day of truly, truly high mixed emotions. Uh, A day that offered so much for so many, but only a few truly noticed. There was genuine praise to God, genuine faith in Jesus, as 
the Jewish Messiah, a time of prophetic expectation and fulfillment, a time of great hope, and as we saw today, great praise, but most unfortunately, also a time of genuine unbelief and rejection, and most of all, of missed opportunity. That's like every holiday season. Nothing's changed. Every time the gospel's preached, the same dynamics are there. There's great praise. There's great unbelief. There's always a day of visitation. Every gospel sermon should be explicit or implicit that Christ is here to save. And the themes get played out cyclical over time and the centuries go on and on. And people gather as they did at this festivity as we're going to see with great praise. But the heart is still empty. Israel, the nation, has been waiting just about five centuries now, longing for their Messiah, the true king who would usher in the kingdom of peace, the kingdom of shalom and righteousness, who would break the yoke of oppression from a neck. Israel knew oppression. And turn her mourning into laughter, her sorrow into joy. The time has come. They've waited. They've longed. This would-be Messiah, this carpenter from Galilee, who would be unnoticed if it wasn't for the extraordinary miracles he's performing, speaking in a way that captured the hearts of the common people, though the religious leaders couldn't see the miracle or his preaching as sent from God. They rallied around him. Something great and something wonderful has happened. Uh, like every time the gospels preach as it was in this time, there are those who are overwhelmed by the grace of God. Just overwhelmed, the sheer overwhelmed by God's constant grace of working in their personal lives and working in the lives of other people. And at the same time, there are others who are fickle in faith with shouts of praise today and crucify Christ tomorrow. Uh, others who just follow the crowd and uh, in praise and worship but have no true faith of their own, they come not in hope of salvation but some kind of religious curiosity. The crowd's mounting. Uh, there was no other distraction at this time. There wasn't a basketball game to go to and there wasn't a football game. I mean, this captured everybody's heart and mind. They were caught up. They were swept up into the hysteria of what was happening. But there was no true faith. None at all. There's no true commitment. There were observers. They were looking at the miracles, but they missed the Messiah. Then there are true converts who love Christ, but sometimes are weak in the faith and they can't stand against hostile crowds. And when they hear you are a disciple of Christ, they can easily and we can easily, as they did, run away, as Peter and the disciples did. They needed strength in their lives. So much is going on in this week that begins here, this Passion Week of Christ. If you read it, read it slowly and see all the different dynamics. See the emotions from high praise to Christ crying to I'll never never deny you to denying him. And we see all this going on. We see the men leaving it, but the women rallying. There's so much going on, so much that captures the imagination. It captures the heart. It truly is a passion week. And we have Christ crying. Jesus up to this point has been preaching and performing miracles for nearly 30 years. All signs that the Messiah has come. 
The gospel has been preached to the poor. The eyes of the blind have been opened. The lame are walking and rejoicing. The mute is praising God. Even the children are crying out Hosanna in the highest. The religious leaders have always been a hindrance to his ministry for most part of the three years, at least the last year and a half, always challenging him and questioning his authority, putting doubts in the minds of others, always causing trouble. And and, and now, according to the prophecy of Zechariah, he's coming into Jerusalem, riding very humbly on a donkey's fold. That's his calling card. That's the Old Testament's last prophecy of Christ. There is nothing else. No other miracle is going to do it. So much so that even if a dead would come back, if you didn't believe in Moses, you won't believe in the dead being raised. This is the last prophetic word. This is the last calling card. When he came, they didn't believe in the the baby in the manger. They didn't believe that Emmanuel was amongst them. Even though his name was Jesus, Savior, they, they didn't believe the prophecies. They didn't believe the lame walking, the dead being raised, the poor having good news. The poor who were oppressed are now rejoicing. That was not assigned to the Pharisees. That was not assigned to the religious leaders. And now comes the last prophetic call. He comes riding in humbly on a donkey. That you might as well put a twenty-five, put twenty-five neon sign saying, "Messiah has come. Wake up out of your slumber." We cannot make it any more clear to the nation of Israel. Listen, Israel, your king is coming humbly into Jerusalem and riding on a donkey. Don't miss it, Jerusalem. There's no other chance. This is it. This is your king. Make no mistake about it. Christ is saying clearly, I am the king. Your humble king. I am the king of glory. The last chance for the leaders to acknowledge him for who he truly is. And to rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. For behold, Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. They missed it. Absolutely missed it. They're welcoming him into the city, and they're thinking they're receiving a humble king, but a week later, they drive him out of the city to Calvary as the Lamb of God slain for sinners. He's coming into Jerusalem at the Passover, the city that kills those who are sent to her to offer himself as the final Paschal Lamb. They're looking to give him a crown. They end up giving him a cross. Such is the kingdom of God. Behold, the end of all sacrifices in the, uh, in the beginning of a new work of God and a new covenant is about to take place. There's a crowd following this king. Coming from Bethany, probably. They were praising God for all the mighty works he was doing. Most likely, Lazarus, the dead man who is now alive, is leading the procession. His two sisters overwhelmed with God's grace. According to John chapter 11, this preceded Christ coming in to Jerusalem. His last and great mighty work. Coming in, 
raising the dead. Lazarus is there. The witness to Lazarus' resurrection are there. They're overwhelmed. And at the same time, because it's the Passover and all the pilgrims are coming from all over the Mediterranean world, all the tribes are there. With this heightened awareness, this uh, prophetic expectation, this grip in their heart, they're hearing the reports about the man who's raising the dead, about all the mighty works. He's like, Could this be Messiah? Could it really be him? It should be a natural inclination of the heart. And they're not coming out in twos and tens. They're coming out in hundreds and thousands. Droves are coming out of Jerusalem with their palm branches. As they see this crowd coming down the ascent from Bethany, from the Mount of Olives, he's coming down and and the crowd is coming and and they're rejoicing. And they come out of Jerusalem and they're rejoicing. And and you can feel it in the air. God is on the move. Singing... The messianic psalms. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The halal psalms. And they're they're filled with hope. Probably tears are running down. The Jews were passionate at festivals. Passionate. If you could create the scene and see it. In our mind's eye and capture the, the height of emotion, religious, spiritual expectation and hope. It's, it's all there. It's all right there being played out right at the doorstep of Jerusalem. Who kills her prophets and those sent to her. Anticlimactic. You can see the sheer hope. And joy. You can almost hear it. Surely this is the son of David. Surely this is Israel's Messiah. Then what's wrong with the picture? And when Jesus drew near, he saw the city and wept. What did Jesus see that no one else saw? Jesus, what are you missing here? There must have been something going on. Look at these great tears of joy. Little did they know there were no tears of joy. Jesus sees right to the human heart. He's not captured by empty praise. At all. He sees the real root of the problem. Unbelief. Just pure unbelief that leads to rejection. Sooner or later, unbelief leads to rejection. Jesus sees the real heart of the matter, the people's perspective. From their perspective, it's all good. We're under Roman rule. We're hurting. Messiah is here. That's our ticket. They're seeing it from their own struggle and not God's perspective they could have wept and said oh my goodness according to the scriptures he's going to be crucified didn't he tell us more than once that the son of man has to go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the leaders and the scribes and the lawyers 
Didn't they hear that? Didn't they hear the wonderful news, but on the third day he's going to rise? No, they didn't. No, they didn't. They heard it time and time again, but they forgot that. They're interpreting everything according to what they want. Isn't that a human mistake? Don't we interpret so much of Christianity and faith by what we want, our need? What's our oppression? What is it that God has to do in our life? What is it? Your God? Do it! This theme is played out so many times in all our lives. We all come with a, a, a wrong understanding of God and we set our hope and put all our eggs in one basket and saying, surely, these are my dreams, these are my visions, these are my aspirations. they got to be God sent. To find what? Broken dreams because God doesn't lie. We have to have an understanding. They didn't read the fine print that Messiah must die, suffer, and then enter in to his glory. They missed it. Jesus is weeping. We see the heart of God in Ezekiel here. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from your transgressions. Turn from your iniquity, or you'll be ruined. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed against me, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, Israel? For I have no pleasure in death, says the Lord, so turn and live. Jesus is living this out. He doesn't want to see Israel die. But he sheds no false hope. They will die. And the city will be raised to the ground. Women and children will be ruined. Because of their unbelief. Jesus weeps. He does not delight in death. These are his people. Christ could weep not because of just rejection. Because he deeply loved those who were going to reject him. There's a difference. You and I, we, 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 our kind of love is different. If you're rejecting me, you're out. <laughs> Email, phone, deleted, out. <laughs> out as trout. No idea who you are. If you care less, don't call me. I'll call you. Isn't it nice to know that God doesn't deal that way? (laughs) Aren't you really glad to know that God doesn't deal that way? He truly weeps. This is a kind of weeping that's different. He's actually wailing at what it means. All this high praise, think about it, all this rejoicing. They're coming down the ascent. They're coming out of Jerusalem. It's almost as like this, this collision course of praise going on. And in the middle of it on a humble donkey is Christ looking and weeping over those he loves so greatly, but yet reject him. These are things we can't comprehend, the love of Christ. It goes beyond our ability to enter into that. Though we can touch upon it, we'll, we'll do that as we get into some application. But how serious this was when Christ cries. And like I said, it wasn't a passive tear, but there were low, loud groanings. 
looking down at all Jerusalem that lay before him. He had a panoramic view. He's at the, at the, at the, at the, the apex of the road looking down. From his perspective, he can see it. And, and, and he can see what's going to happen with a prophetic understanding that not one stone of the temple will be laid upon another. It's all going to be raised to the ground and ruined, which happens 40 years later on the general tide. It's just ruined. Absolutely. Atrocities will take the place. Christ is predicting atrocities. Gross, murderous atrocities. He holds back no truth, nor should any Christian especially the ministry of those who reject Christ. This scenario has played out in every Christian service ever since. We see it over and over again. Every service should be an opportunity. Every service should have a visitation from God in truth. For salvation, the message of eternal hope, and at times along with a certain judgment, should be either implicit or explicit. And every time we gather and we lift up Christ and his great love, as the gospel is explained through preaching and teaching, and even the songs we have, this dynamic is always there. There's always there's a visitation. You might be here today. And you might be part of the crowd that's coming out of Jerusalem because, well, that's what you do at the Passover. That's what you do at Palm Sunday. I'm going to go with the crowd. Uh, That's what I'm called to do. Is Christ rejoicing or is he weeping? What's going on in our hearts? We see a clear principle of decision, of judgment in this text. Judgment is not a pleasant subject. The text teaches us how to approach it, though, and that's important. A growing Christian should be sensitive to the lost and confused people around them. Very, very, very sensitive. Because we know the things that make for peace. Paul says it clear. We experience alone. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we grow in our Christian faith. We should be sensitive to the lost and the confused and those who are still rejecting Christ. Our theology and our lives should be married to one another as ambassadors of Christ. The reality of certain judgment, the price of unbelief and sin, should bring us to a very real compassion for others, a compassion that's characterized by our life. Can we possibly speak about judgment and eternal damnation? Can we sp- possibly speak about it without warning people, without loving them? Could, could I really carry the message in my heart that there's a certain judgment to, to live, to die once, and then comes the judgment? Can I do that without any compassion for the lost? Then I'm telling them, turn away from your sin and be saved. Can I honestly give that appeal If I did not, like Christ, love those who reject us and even reject Christ. Can I possibly say, oh yeah, well you'll get yours at the end. No. We come to a place of great tear and great 
agony of the soul when we carry in the message that we know that brings to life. And we know that every time we bring the message of life, it is a day of visitation. And we don't want them to miss their day of visitation and miss the things that make for peace. As Christians, we've come into this throughout our life. And like Christ, we should not soften the blow of this reality. It's real. And just as the prediction of Jerusalem came full to true, so will the great storm when people stand before the white throne judgment. Those who cry for other salvation have a right to speak about a judgment to come. If we don't cry and care for another man's soul, if we generally are not concerned for the destiny of a soul, then please do not warn anybody of hell. Do not. And if you warn no one of hell, dare not preach or teach the love of God. Because you're not preaching the right love of God. We need to do it from the right motives, from genuine concerns. We have Christ weeping. Great weeping while everybody's rejoicing. And he gives this this lucid, clear, and articulate vision of what's going to take place. He holds nothing back. Out of his broken heart, he sends forth warning. It's hard to believe that he can love those who openly reject him. He loves those who are confused. Hosanna in the highest, crucify him a week later. Surely God's finished with his people. How could he have any more grace on them? But little did they know, Pentecost is right around the corner. And the same people who are saying, Hosanna, crucify him, Hosanna, crucify him, Hosanna, crucify him. After one sermon, one saying, what must we do to be saved? Oh, cleanse me from my rotten sin. How good is God? How good is God? How good is God never to give up on any of us? To think that even after a mighty rejection, in mighty confusion, that even many of the priests, the scriptures teach us, came to faith in Christ. Don't think that these people in Acts that got saved were all indifferent, saying, oh, look, they're killing the innocent man. They were right in there. They were part of the screaming crowd. And the chief coward of them all was preaching to them on Pentecost. The saving message of Jesus Christ. Where is the hope in his weeping? Surely, in judgment, remember mercy. God is always active in saving souls. Please let us take this from Christ Verse 39, and the Pharisees and the multitude were saying to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop them from crying out and praising you so loud. They're offering you praise that only belongs to God himself. It's amazing that there will always be people that try to stop the praise of others. Always. Instead of enjoying Christ ourselves, we can become a hindrance to others. We can be guilty of this practice without ever realizing it. We can stop. 
We might not like the sound. It might look different. It might not be appealing to us. But please let us never get in the way of how people worship. We can't set our personal preferences to superimpose on other people. There are those who sit back in quiet contentment and reflection as their hearts are soaring as they listen to the doxology. And there are others who are just screaming and yelling and loving Christ with banner and flag, loving Him with tears in their eyes because they were saved out of homosexuality and forgiven of murder and forgiven of adultery and forgiven of fraud and, and, a, and a life of sin and everything else. And they, they can't stop but to scream from the top of their lungs, I love you, Lord! And anywhere between the spectrum of the two. Anywhere. The spectrum of worship and Christian life today. From the very somber, reflective, contemplative, to the, to the very high praise of the charismatic that just can't stop praising his name. No, they're going to dance as David danced, and they're going to sing as David sang, and they're going to pray like David prayed. And we find ourselves in there, somewhere on the spectrum. And last, verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Surely it's an injustice and foolishness in God's eyes to, for a person to not believe in Christ. It's also an injustice to believe in Christ and not speak up for him. It's one thing to reject him, but to believe and not say anything. We need to cry out. Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is God. It's interesting that this came to pass. This, this sort of the stones will cry out. They'll cry out. It means to shout and proclaim simultaneously the wonderful works of God. That's what it means. Listen to Paul. In Acts chapter 13, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. They were reviling him. They didn't like the crowds following Paul in this new message. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a life for the Gentiles, that you bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And as many were appointed to eternal life, they believed. God will raise up people to worship him from anywhere and from anybody at any time to his own glory by his own grace despite anything anybody says God will raise up people to worship him from the Gentiles from the stones we were all dead in sin and transgressions let's not forget what do we do when I bring the list before God my family, Lord. My family, here they are, all 30 of them. My, my great-grandchildren, my grandchildren, my mother, my father, here they are, Lord. They're rejecting you day in and day out. Their day of visitation. They don't know yet what makes the peace for them. Paul did it. He went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Christ did it. And we need to do it. Leave the list at the foot of the cross 
and go to someone else. Because God has appointed people to eternal life. The field is always white for harvest. And we need to take the ones that mean so much to us as Jesus did. And take the ones that mean so much to us as was to Paul. Paul says in Romans chapter 9 that he wished himself a curse for his countrymen. But when your countrymen reject Christ, at least for now, go to the next field. Because I'll tell you now, people will believe if we don't keep silent. Father, we thank you, God. We bless you, Lord. The holidays can make us all fickle, God. It can bring out and show us what we are on the inside, Father. God, I pray that the sermon captivate, the truth of the scripture captivate who you are in our life. And God, let every day be a day of rejoicing. Let every day be a day of visitation. Let every day be a time that makes for peace and share it with others, Father God, as we pray and intercede for our loved ones, our friends, and our family. That means so much to us, oh God. Let us not forget that you have people in this place that will rejoice as the Gentiles rejoice when Paul turned to the Gentiles and they rejoice and glorified in the word of God. God, remove the blinders, remove the narrow-mindedness, Father God, that there are people all around us that you're looking to save. Around every Christian in this room, there are people that God has appointed to eternal life. They will rejoice. They will glorify God. Enter into this work and leave our family and our friends at the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.